0: Where are the educators? Where are the rabbis, Uh, the politicians in this community? And and there's there's this immediate tendency to push back, to be defensive, and a community that really had self-confidence in its integrity, in its purity, would naturally respond with outrage, not against those who are accusing the community, but those within its ranks who are polluting the integrity of the community. We're not hearing that.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Two weeks ago on Yom Yushalayim, Many marchers walked into the old city of Jerusalem and honorably and admirably celebrated the reunification of Jerusalem 55 years ago. I, like many thousands of people, said prayers of thanksgiving to Hashem who gave us the merit to live in a time of Jewish sovereignty over a united Jerusalem, a merit that not long ago would have been utterly unfathomable. On that same day, there were some marchers who shouted at and taunted Arab residents of Jerusalem used racist language against them, chanted death to the Arabs, and more. And while this was far from the majority, it certainly was nowhere near the majority, the numbers were significant enough to be upsetting and concerning. And yes, it happened. The video evidence is incontrovertible. Perhaps there are many loud voices coming from the religious Zionist leadership condemning the actions of these individuals, but they haven't been loud enough for many of us to hear them. By the way, I don't think that this means that they agree with these actions. I'm sure they don't. But for reasons that we'll discuss during the podcast, I still think that they have an obligation to say something. And by the same token, the fact that the party officially known as the Religious Zionist Party has a member who is an open kahonist in the Knesset should be concerning. This is not the Religious Zionism most of us knew 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. It's certainly not the Religious Zionism that was dominant 50 years ago. Something has changed. Moderating voices seem to be drowned out, and that should concern all of us. Is it inappropriate to point this out, as if mentioning these elements is thereby painting all religious Zionists with the same castigating brush? Are these taunts an inappropriate but understandable response to constant Palestinian rejectionism? How else should religious Zionists act and believe, given the deep-seated traditional belief that all of Yehudah Shomron belongs to Israel? Is refusing to march with flags through the Damascus Gate a sign of moderation, or a form of timidity which will be exploited by our enemies?" How can a proud religious Zionist balance valid and deep-seated belief in a unified Jerusalem with respect for its non-Jewish inhabitants? And what about Har Habayit, the Temple Mount, the focal point, the focus of our prayers for 2,000 years? Should we just accept the status quo and leave it in non-Jewish hands? Should we acknowledge that, in so doing, we may be saving Jewish lives? It's not a simple question. To discuss this and much more... I was honored to speak with Yossi Klein-Halevi, the author of Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor and other books. And let me point out that these issues are not political issues alone. They go to the heart of what it means to be a religious Jew who is also a supporter of the State of Israel. We'll get to that interview in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffee House team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting. JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Yessi Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He co-directs the Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. Over 150 Muslim leaders have participated in this unique program. He is co-host, together with Danielle Hartman and Ilana Steinhein, of the Hartman Institute's podcast, For Heaven's Sake. Halevi's 2013 book, Like Dreamers, won the Jewish Book Council's Everett Book of the Year Award. His latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a New York Times bestseller and has appeared in 11 languages. He has written for leading op-ed pages in North America and is a former contributing editor to The New Republic. He is frequently quoted on Israeli, Middle Eastern, and Jewish affairs in leading media around the world, and is one of the best-known lecturers on Israeli issues in the American Jewish community and on North American campuses. Yasti Klein-Halevi, thank you very much for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast today.
0: Oh, pleasure, Scott.
1: I want to start off by briefly talking about the Jerusalem Day Parade that took place not quite two weeks ago. Here is David Horowitz's description in the Times of Israel. This is a short piece. Some brandished, he's talking about marchers, some brandished the flag of Lehava, a Jewish supremacist group, and affixed racist stickers to the metal shutters of the stalls in the Muslim quarter, closed for the afternoon and evening to minimize Jewish-Arab friction. Others chanted slogans urging death to Arabs and the burning of their villages. I saw a group of youngsters shouting whore at a group of Palestinians, some of them elderly women, watching from high. I saw a young man flip his middle finger at another group of Palestinians he spotted in an alley. I saw a bespectacled kid, probably not even in his teens, kicking repeatedly at the metal shutter of a Palestinian market stall, delighting in the disturbance, and then spitting on it for good measure, all within minutes. That's his description. And... Many people have effectively denied this account, saying that this is a tiny minority of people. It's not at all representative of what religious Zionists really believe. What do you think about that?
0: So let's, let's begin with the party that uh, has the chutzpah to call itself religious Zionism. Uh, and that is a far-right party that's a direct descendant uh, of uh, the communist uh, Kach party. And... It now has, is it six seats, I believe, in, in the current Knesset, and polls show it going up to nine. And Itamar Ben-Gvir, who hung a picture of Baruch Goldstein in his salon, is riding high in popularity. Now, not all of his uh, voters or potential voters uh, come from the religious Zionist community, some are haridim but enough of them do so that thoughtful religious Zionists would acknowledge that there's a problem here. First of all, an educational problem. Rather than reacting defensively and saying it's only a small minority or a peripheral minority, where is the outcry against bands of religious Jews roaming the streets of Jerusalem looking for Arabs to beat up? Where's the outcry saying, this is not us? Not saying, you know, how dare you accuse us, but repudiating this ideology? We don't hear it. Where are the educators? Where are the rabbis? Uh, The politicians in this community? And and there's there's this immediate tendency to push back, to be defensive, and a community that really had self-confidence in its integrity, in its purity, would naturally respond with outrage, not against those who are accusing the community, but those within its ranks who are polluting the integrity of the community. We're not hearing that. And so that reaction is actually an even bigger problem.
1: What do you mean it's an even bigger problem?
0: It's an even bigger problem than the fact that there is, a, and it is a small minority, but the fact that that small minority is, first of all, tolerated within the community. Uh, there's no attempt to expel them. Uh, there's no attempt to say, Zelon achnu, it's not us, in a sense of aiming that message to, to the youth of the community. Don't go in that direction. This is not us. Now, the situation used to be very different. You know, I remember I had a conversation once with the late Hanan Porat, who was really the founder of the, of, of the settlement movement. And he had such a deep, visceral distaste for Ka- for Kahanism. He regarded Mayor Kahana as an outlier. Uh, and that was true for the first generation of settler leaders. Uh, they had contempt for Kahana. We don't see that contempt anymore. They sit in coalition with Kahana's successors. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is, is is the indictment of the community.
1: I just want to add to that. I remember... Years ago here in Beit Shemesh with the Oropa note situation where some Hasidish extremists were throwing rocks at girls who they believed were not dressed in a modest way, and certain Haredi rabbis were asked to speak out against this, and they refused saying they don't represent us. why should I have to repudiate them to which many of us in the religious Zionist community said because they associate themselves with your community and you haven't said anything. If you don't say anything, it's like you acknowledge it. I think we now see the same thing in the religious Zionist world by our leaders. I'm not saying all of them, but by some or too many leaders refusing to repudiate people who identify with our community.
0: It's not not some. From where where I'm sitting, it's most. And you know, how many times after there's a terror attack do we say, where's the Muslim condemnation? And they say, there are a billion Muslims. What are you coming to us for? We say, well, they're doing this in the name of Islam. And these people, these thugs, uh, are doing this in the name of religious Zionism. They're doing it in the literal name of religious Zionism as well as the metaphorical name. They've taken the community's name. Where's the outcry? It's not kach it's not anymore. It's religious Zionism. And I think there's something in that shift, in that linguistic appropriation, that's deeply telling about the change that's happened in the community.
1: Well, let's talk about what's changing in the community because you mentioned Kahana. Obviously, extremism itself isn't a new phenomenon. It's always been there in some form or another. You're saying now it's gotten larger. Do you think that extremism is actually more prevalent now, or is it that many people are simply more tolerant of that extremism?
0: I think it's both. And uh, there's, there's a, a radicalization in Israeli society generally, among Israeli youth generally. And the religious Zionist community hasn't found its, its moral voice. And this is a community that's supposed to be the vanguard of the Israeli ethos. And tell us what's acceptable here, rabbis? What's uh, What's the, what's the educational me- message? And there, there are different levels of this. First of all, there's the hardcore and uh, the the element of terrorism that's that's come in and, and that has been tolerated. Uh, beyond that, there is a, a more general drift toward toward positions that were once considered to be. Uh, beyond the mainstream, and that now are becoming mainstream. So, for example, the Aliyah uh, to Harabite, and not just in Aliyah, we saw this uh, on Yom Yerushalayim now, an overt attempt to, to violate the status quo, and raising Israeli flags on uh, on the Temple Mount. And, uh, and this is considered to be a great, a great Uh, Israeli victory, you know, not since 1967 has the Israeli flag been raised. Now, what's the consequence of this? Are people thinking this through? Are they thinking, are they asking themselves, God forbid, how much Jewish blood is it worth to to break the status quo? Now, when I say this to friends in the community, the immediate pushback is, well, you can say that about Hittiy Yashruj, you can say it about Jerusalem, you can say it about our presence here, is any of it worth it?" And my response to that is the only way that you can really trigger a mass, first of all, a mass uprising of Palestinians and get much of the Muslim world mobilized against Israel is by changing the status quo on Harabite. And we've seen it over and over again. The trigger for Palestinian violence, especially in recent years, has been has been the Temple Mount. Now that's now it's certainly true that Palestinian terrorism doesn't need a justification, but what it takes to get to get thousands of people out there in the streets, what it takes to get a a mass violent re, uh, revolt is is the status quo on the Temple Mount. This city, I live in Jerusalem. This city is a volcano, and I live not only in uh, in, in my, my my aspirations for Yerushalayim Shalmala, I also live in Yerushalayim Shalmata. And I would like to be able to ride the light rail train. I like to go to work and come back home and not have to worry about, about a mass Palestinian uprising. This will trigger it. This will trigger mass violence between Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews. A change of the status quo will have massive security implications and regional complications. We are also in in an extraordinary moment where large parts of the Arab world uh, are ending the 70-year siege against Israel. And I don't think the religious Zionist community has internalized the Abraham Accords, realizes just what's happening here. Saudi Arabia is looking for a relationship with us. The only thing that can sabotage this historic acceptance of Israel in the region, which is one of the greatest Zionist victories in our history, is, is a change of the status quo on the Temple Mount. It will destroy relations with the, with the Saudis. It will set us back maybe irrevocably with the Gulf States and Morocco. Now, if your theology is Abel and you want to impose that on the, on the modern state of Israel and on, on our ability to maintain relations with the rest of the world, then you know that was Mayor Kahana's approach. His, his idea was, we need to show God that we're not afraid of the nations, and we're going to do whatever it takes to put Israel in a place of isolation. Now, if you want to do that, okay, but I, and, and I think most citizens of this country, deeply oppose that vision for, for our, uh, our ability to live in this region and to conduct our, our international affairs. Am Levadad Yishkon is not a blueprint for the state of Israel.
1: I definitely agree with that. I think that this fundamentalism that's infected religion in general in the world now, and in our case, the religious Zionist community, is a problem because the answer would be, as you said, who cares? This is what God wants, so we have to follow God's orders. I personally do not go to the Harabite for numerous reasons, but primarily because of what you said, I don't want Jewish blood on my hands. I want to ask you, though, does this also apply to not going through, let's say, the Muslim quarter in a march? That is not the same thing as Harabite, but it's kind of close. And it also was something which Prime Minister Bennett said, no, we have to show our sovereignty there. And therefore, they marched through Damascus Gate and all of these problems that we mentioned before in the name of David Horowitz took place. So is that another place where we should not go? Or is that another place that we have to show that we are in charge? I realize that's not really a binary question, but that's why I'm presenting it.
0: Right, right. You know, I moved to Israel in, um, well, 40 years ago. This is my 40th anniversary, actually. Mazal tov. (laughs) Thank you. And the way that Yom Yerushalayim was celebrated then was with a national march of tens of thousands of people down uh, Rehov Yafo. I remember a cross-section of Israeli society Uh, In those years, there was still a a powerful, he studied with labor union, and there would be be labor uh, groups marching. You had kibbutzniks with their tractors uh, riding down Yafo, all celebrating Yom Yerushalayim. Now, that was on Yafo Street, which is West Jerusalem, but you had the whole country united around United Jerusalem. Now we have a flag waving through the Muslim quarter, with complete with waving giant flags in the faces of uh, Muslim residents there, banging on their on their stores, uh, taunting them. Not everybody, not most, but some. That's that's now built in to the march, an, an element of taunting. And who comes to celebrate United Jerusalem? One community the religious Zionists. The rest of the state of Israel, even, and I mean, most Israelis love Jerusalem or certainly support a united Jerusalem, but where are they? They're not celebrating Yom Yerushalayim. Yom Yerushalayim has become a sectoral holiday. It's almost like a, um, you know, a Hasidic uh, court that celebrates its own, has its own calendar of its its Admorim. So if you look at the dynamic here. We've lost the unity of the Jewish people, and what we have instead is this Dafka march waving our flag in the faces of people who uh, are not citizens in this country. They do have uh, more rights than Palestinians uh, in Judea and Samaria, certainly, uh, but they're not full citizens. Many of them certainly don't want our rule here, and we are, are shoving our sovereignty in their faces. Now, is that an expression of self-confidence or the opposite? Uh, you know, I, I think of a, a, um, a song that uh, Mayor Ariel wrote. Mayor Ariel was uh, one of the liberators of Jerusalem, was a paratrooper, kibbutznik, to my mind, uh, the greatest singer-songwriter uh, of his generation. And uh, Mayor Ariel has a song where he says um, uh, a person a person shouts what he what he doesn't have uh, he's missing justice he'll shout justice and that's what I think when I look at these kids waving the flag and you really have to shout it't isn't it. isn't it obvious that we we are sovereign in Jerusalem you have to basically go into people's neighborhoods, go into into the people that we are controlling, that we're ruling, and you need to wave the flag in their faces. I don't feel any need for that. And so there's something here, I think that betrays a deep uh, lack of self-confidence in our ability to maintain sovereignty. And it becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling process because the rest of the country has no interest in, in, in being part of this, in being part of this provocation.
1: I would Uh, guess, though, Yassi, that people in the religious Zionist community would say that it's not that we left them, they left us. We're the only ones who are continuing to guard the ideals that were true in 67. It's not so much that they're avoiding us, but they're trying to avoid Yushalayim altogether. We are standing up for Jerusalem.
0: Look, I think that there's a mutual dynamic at work here. And there's certainly a great deal of truth to the assertion that a large part of secular Israel uh, has lost uh, much of its Zionist enthusiasm. That's true. But how did we get to the point where it's almost completely a religious Zionist holiday? There's something there in that that extreme imbalance. That's not only the fault of of the secularists. Now it's true, there has been to some extent a secular abdication, but there's also been a religious Zionist expropriation And this is a dynamic that's 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 bad for Jerusalem. It's bad for Yom Yerushalayim, and it's very bad for for Israeli society.
1: When you speak about the lack of self-confidence that's expressed by waving a flag in somebody's face, I agree with that. To me. The best expression of sovereignty is to show responsibility, not some sort of conquering dominance. I think by showing responsibility, by giving them better sewage, by giving better supplies, giving better services, I think that's the best way of expressing it. But somehow, to me at least, that has been ignored or lost in the face of flag-waving nationalism. I'll give you an
0: example, Scott. I live in Kivatso uh, ratit in uh, French Hill. And right next door is a Palestinian village, Isouya the municipality planted a row of trees along the the road that meets where French Hill and Isuia converge. The row of trees ends at the entrance to Isuia and continues down the road to French Hill. You, You follow the trees and you see that's almost a kind of a border. Now, I don't understand. If we're sovereign here, then, you express your sovereignty not by waving flags in the faces of Palestinians, but by making them feel that there's a physical continuity between between the two parts of the city and that the municipality is not discriminating. And that as, as a resident of Jerusalem, as someone who wants to see United Jerusalem continue and thrive, that to me is an expression of, uh, of divided Jerusalem,
1: I just wonder if people would argue to play devil's advocate that the reason they don't do it is because it will be seen as unfair, infringing on their territory, so to speak. I agree with you. I wish they would do that, but maybe they're afraid that uh, we Palestinian we residents infringe, will say otherwise.
0: We, no, no, we infringe on their territory in so many in so many other ways that uh, it's really a um, it's simply that we we don't see them. They're transparent, and and I think that that's true for so many of the kids who are marching and waving flags uh, through the Muslim quarter, they don't see the Palestinian families that are living there. They're transparent for them. That's what bothers me. And so there's a, there's a continuity here. There's a moral continuity, a breakdown of morality that begins with the notion that it's legitimate to March through people's neighborhoods and implicitly taunt them by waving giant flags. Uh, with that minority that explicitly taunts Palestinians with racist uh, slogans, uh, but it begins with the premise that it is within our moral right, within our our right in, in defending Israeli sovereignty and honor, to be provocative. That's where the problem begins. That's where the educational problem begins. And then yes, a small minority will take it to what I consider to be its logical conclusion, which is open taunting and banging on the shutters and putting racist uh, writing racist slogans and chanting uh, uh, let the village burn, which is the new favorite song in certain circles.
1: So I'm going to play devil's advocate again. I played it once. I'm going to play it one more time. I'm going to say something which I do not agree with, but here it goes. Maybe these taunts These racist taunts and slogans are a natural response to Palestinian rejectionism, where the idea that Jews are a true people with a claim to Israel at all is verboten. Palestinians openly deride a Jewish connection to Israel. It's a hoax. The Shawa is a hoax. The most important events in our history didn't really happen to us. The worst terrorism in Israel's history, as you say in your book, Letters by Palestinian Neighbor, the worst terrorism in Israel's history took place immediately after Ehud Barak offered almost all of the West Bank and Gaza to a future Palestinian state. Moderation is therefore perceived by our enemies as weakness, and weakness means more dead Jews. The best defense is a good offense, and that means showing them who's boss. That's the devil's advocate claim. You know, the list
0: of uh, accusations against the Palestinians... Uh, is, um, is basically a list of, uh, of points that I've been making for, uh, for decades uh, in writing and speaking. Uh, those are my arguments. Uh, the question is, how do we protect ourselves? How do we ensure that we continue to maintain uh, our sovereignty uh, in Jerusalem, that we continue to maintain our, um, uh, our credibility in the world. And one of the ways, there are two ways to do that. One is by remaining physically strong and the other is by maintaining our moral credibility. If you lose one or the other, you're losing. The left did never fully internalize the need for us to maintain our, our deterrence, our physical power, And the right hasn't internalized uh, our need to maintain moral credibility. Now, I don't mean moral credibility with our enemies. I don't care what Amnesty International thinks of us, but I certainly care uh, what they think about us in Congress. I care what they think about us in that part of the Democratic Party that is pro-Israel, and it's still the majority. Uh, I care what they think about us in the American Jewish community. Those are our closest allies. I care when we lose parts of the American Jewish community and acts like the flag waving undermine our moral credibility in the world with our friends. You know, and those, who, those, those among us who say, oh, we have no friends. Well, okay. You know, that's, that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. because uh, we would never have gotten to where we, where we are today as a country If we didn't have friends.
1: You mentioned your writings. You wrote in your book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, that peacemakers have failed by not taking the religious viewpoints of religious Jews and religious Palestinians into account when making their peace agreements or attempted peace agreements. So this is moving in a slightly different direction, but given the way that religion is manifest now, let's say specifically in the religious Zionist community as you're describing it, can religion realistically be the basis Of peacemaking? Because most people, I think, would assume that fundamentalism or the fundamentalist values of territorial maximalism, I'm speaking about both Jews and Muslims now, that trumps an eschatological vision of peace. So is there a way that we can involve religious Jews and religious Palestinians in peacemaking without them undermining it by demanding everything?
0: Well, you know, we have a really interesting model that's playing out before our eyes every day in the government. uh, And that is. An Islamist party, frankly Islamist, Ra'am, is not only part of a Zionist coalition, the first Arab party to break that taboo, but its leader, Mansour Abbas, made the unprecedented statement for an Arab-Israeli politician when he said that Israel was founded as a Jewish state and it will remain a Jewish state. He made that statement in Hebrew, and then he repeated it, in Arabic before an Arab audience. And I heard that, and I thought, we're going to now see banner headlines in Israel. Uh, This is the breakthrough. If this conflict, as people like me have been claiming for years, if this conflict is about the Arab refusal to accept our legitimacy, voila, (laughs) here's here's the head of an Islamist party accepting Israel as a Jewish state. Listen to the outrage in the uh, Arab List party. Listen to the outrage against Mansour Abbas as a traitor. Listen to Hamas. They get what he's done. But on our side, well, as who Hamas, he said, he doesn't really mean it. We have a model, a working model here. Of a seriously religious Muslim politician accepting Israel as a Jewish state. Now, I was at I was at a meeting with Abbas, uh, not too long ago, and he told us about the evolution of his his process. He said, "I started to get to know Jews. I started getting involved in in dialogue with with religious Jews." And he specifically named uh, Rav Menachem Froman, the late the late. Uh, Rav Menachem, who was a close friend of mine and and Mm -hmm. really my my mentor. And meeting Rav Menachem and meeting other religious Jews, he said, I basically, he said, I didn't know. I didn't know your story. And something changed. There was an evolution. Now, that's, that's not true of his whole party. He's not, so far, I don't see him carrying his party. But this is a process. This is a slow process. Somebody He's Nachshon. Somebody actually took the plunge. And why aren't we endorsing him? Why aren't we celebrating this? So this, to me, is a vindication of Rav Menachem's vision. And this is something Rav Menachem said for years, that the way to 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 break the barrier, he said he said Palestinians will never accept secular Zionism speak to them as religious Jews, speak to them about God. And I know that from my own experience, when you speak to Palestinians in a religious language, something changes, not always, uh, but it can. So for example, you mentioned my book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Uh, In the paperback edition, I have an epilogue of Palestinian responses. And one of the responses is written by a young man who grew up in Gaza. He's a he's a writer, a very fine writer. And he writes in his letter that until I read your book, I could never hear a Zionist argument. But reading about Zionism from someone who has faith, a religious person, allowed me for the first time to hear, to hear that, to hear that argument. I didn't make him a Zionist. He's, I, I, I didn't convince him, but he heard something that he didn't hear before. Now, we're in a very long-term process. We're either going to engage while at the same time being wary, realizing that our victories are going to, to be very gradual, and we're going to need to continue to be strong and vigilant forever. We're in one of the world's most dangerous neighborhoods. But at the same time, let's try to explore possible openings on the other side. And how is it, again, that after Mansour Abbas's breakthrough and after the Abraham Accords, we're still saying the same thing? There's no one to talk to. It's not true. Hmm. Look at the changes.
1: You know, Yossi, you mentioned a character in your book at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. I think you call him the Green Sheikh. And that character, he's from. he lives in Canada, at least when the book was published 20 years ago, he was in Canada. And I don't know what happened since that book was published. But at least at the time, the vision of that particular person is a real person you met in Gaza in oh, a yeah. mosque. It yeah. was very, very moving because he said he used to have hatred for the Jews praying at the Western Wall in a spot where he was as a child where his house was knocked down, I believe that's what he said. And no, somehow...
0: He, 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 was in the sh- he grew up in the in the Mugrabi. And
1: yeah. he says that over the years, he somehow grew into a different form of religious Islam, where now he's happy to see children playing where he grew up. And I, I don't know how we can inculcate that more, but perhaps dialogue is part of it. I want to mention something else in addition, because... I personally think that religious Zionism made a wrong turn after the 1973 war, not because it became more associated with Gush Emunim, which is what happened, I believe. You mentioned Hanan Porat earlier— The problem isn't Gush Emunim. Gush Emunim, in my mind, is fine. It's more that Gush Emunim took it over such that the original, more pragmatic religious Zionism of people like Rav Reinis or Rav Yosef Bitzaloveitchik became almost no longer part of the religious Zionist vision at all. And then the second wrong term is what you mentioned before, when someone like Hanan Porat, who was a Gush Emunim person, who was a settler leader, but had no use for extremism in the sense of the Kahana kind of thinking that we see now. And now that's again become, I'm not saying it's dominant, but it's become acceptable within there. Perhaps part of the solution is not only in dialogue, although that's part of it, but in opening up our eyes to new models, maybe even old models that have come to become uh, no longer part of the mainstream.
0: Look, I have deep disagreements and I've had deep disagreements uh, with Gushemunim almost since its inception, but there was a mainstream debate that one could have. And I'm afraid that parts of religious Zionism are moving in a direction uh, that is going to make that sense of a shared mainstream uh, language more and more difficult. Look at the way Naftali Bennett, the first religious Zionist prime minister is being treated by his community as a traitor. And uh, I read the religious Zionist press, I see what's being written there. And it's, it's the hatred, the, the, the contempt is extraordinary, and there's something unhealthy, deeply unhealthy that's happening in the community which it is refusing to face up to, and, uh, and that's what worries me.
1: Do you think that that hatred is coming from a religious source, or it's coming despite our texts?
0: You know, when you have a, a religion that, that spans 4,000 years, that, that spans every era of human development and thought, Uh, You're going to have lots of different texts, lots of reflect, (laughs) that reflect very different sensibilities. Um, You can, you can make the case for Kahanism based on a selective reading of texts. Mayor Kahana was a legitimate Jewish theologian. I deeply oppose his vision of Judaism, but you can't say it's not an aspect of Judaism. Uh, By the same token, you can through a selective reading of texts, you can have a liberal or progressive tikkun olam version of Judaism, which I also think is distorted. It's missing uh, so many elements and complexities, but you can't say that that's not an aspect of Judaism. It's It's a question of balance and emphasis. And so what are the texts that are going to nurture a, a healthy Israeli religiosity, a transition from Galut to Ribonut, from exile to, to sovereignty. Sovereignty uh, not only gives us uh, privileges, it gives us responsibilities, moral responsibilities. And we've got lots of texts to help us through that, those dilemmas. The question is, are we going to, uh, to read them? How will we interpret them? And uh, that's true for religion generally. It's all about interpretation and
1: selective reading. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said something very similar to that in his book, Not in God's Name, the selective reading of texts and the fact that there are problematic texts. So I know you have to go, and I appreciate your time, Jesse. One final question. If you could chart the future of religious Zionism and Jerusalem Day for Israel, in a quick few-sentence soundbite, what would you want it to look like?
0: I would love to see the return of, of uh, of Am Yisrael to Jerusalem on Yom Yishalayim. I would love to see the dancing and the flag waving at the hotel, but not going through uh, Muslim neighborhoods. I would love to see uh, some uh, elements of uh, of an of an interfaith expression. Uh, there is that on Yom Yushalayim; it's small. Uh, there are groups uh, that do that. Machon Hartman, the institute where I sit just sponsored a, uh, an interfaith uh, Yom Yerushalayim. And that doesn't take away from Israeli sovereignty. It enhances it. This is something that, that some of our more ardent nationalists, our more defensive nationalists don't understand. That the more generous you are with your sovereignty, the more credibility you have and the stronger your sovereignty becomes. Right now, the sovereignty that that, that the flag wavers through the Muslim quarter are trying to impose is a brittle and angry and bitter sovereignty. That kind of sovereignty makes us weaker and more vulnerable. So let's opt for the generosity. We have lots of texts that can enforce that vision and if we're serious about this being a messianic moment, potentially a messianic moment, w- well, let's look at some of our messianic texts. Let's look at th- let's look at Yeshayahu. There's lots there uh, in the, in our prophetic uh, tradition that can help us make the transition from a ghetto defensiveness. And I see the I see the kids with the flags as expressing a a rather than the security of sovereignty. And let's look at some of our generous, expansive messianic texts to figure out what this moment should really be looking like.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, Jesse Klein-Halevy, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom. I appreciate uh, it. So much appreciated, Scott. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts please visit JewishCoffeeHouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences